Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. If you've been enjoying episodes of the Mental Models podcast, you'd likely enjoy reading Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. George and I co-authored this book, Merging Our Knowledge, to provide you with an authoritative guide where our money-related biases come from and also what we can do about them. Material from Understanding Behavioral Bias is now included within the legendary Harvard Case Studies content library. Harvard Case Studies is widely used across the worlds of finance and business, and it's recognized as being one of the top repositories of leading-edge financial content. The book is available in both print and Kindle versions on Amazon. So buy it, read it, and improve your process. Okay, welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter. Dan Krawczyk. And I've been playing some darts recently, George. And, uh, you know, just when you're throwing darts on your own, just kind of practicing, sometimes you feel like you're just really on. And then other times it's like you're you're just missing repeatedly. And I keep thinking up, what, you know, why is that happening? And it feels like I'm sometimes... Uh, endowed with a particular talent in the moment. And I, I've been manufacturing these explanatory stories in my mind, like maybe I'm a little fatigued now, so that's why I'm missing so much. I think you've been conditioned to uh, to think that way, Dan. I think we've all been brought up where uh, you know there's a narrative associated with uh, whatever that we're doing at the time. And uh, you know we start to apply a pattern. I've definitely been grasping for reasons to explain these uh, these apparent streaks. And uh, it turns out that the field uh, of behavioral economics and psychology has been grappling with this same phenomenon for a number of years, uh, going back to some uh, really interesting original work by Tom Gilovich and uh, Amos Tversky on Robert Vallone from 1985. And this was uh, known as the hot hand effect. And they had uh, noticed that same sort of sampling uh, phenomenon where where something is going particularly well uh, in a streak form for a while, and uh, people begin to try to find reasons for it. Um, the Gilovich and colleagues' work actually had looked at basketball, and so they they analyzed free throw shooting in basketball games um, because there was a belief in this hot hand that a particular player is uh, hot right now, and they're um, you know, in, endowed maybe transiently with some unique streak of talent, and therefore they should be played more, and the other team should account for them more. And uh, they decided to, to do some uh, statistical sampling uh, of that, that phenomenon and found that it really isn't a strong effect. The hot hand effect was, was uh, somewhat debunked back in 1985, that it didn't seem as if you could find real evidence for this, that the fact is players who shoot, say, 80% free throws are going to have streaks where they they make 12 in a row, and they're going to have streaks where they miss 12 in a row. But reversion to the mean tends to correct for all this over time. So uh, that led to this idea that that maybe we're missing something. Maybe we're over-interpreting um, you know, some unique occurrence when what we're merely witnessing is just variance within a random distribution. All right. So it's basically like that movie Waiting for Godot where the guy's flipping the quarter and he just keeps saying heads over and over again. Heads, 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 heads. <laughs> and you're like, you're just waiting for him to you know, stop. 
but uh, it seems fixed. Yeah, when you get one <laughs> of a particular outcome over and over again, and you start to immediately grasp for even superstitious reasons as to why that's the case. Now, um, over time, others have uh, done a lot of work on the hot hand effect, and it turns out there is some evidence for hot hand. It's you know, it's maybe too simplistic to think that a skill. Uh, activity like shooting baskets or throwing darts is random. It's it's not random. You know there are, there are other factors. One of the things um, that uh, Jeremy Arkey's pointed out, for example, in basketball is that you have def- defenders, right? So if if someone is particularly hot in their shooting, it's likely that the other team's going to you know start defending them a little more aggressively, which is likely to cut down their their shooting percentage. So. There are, like life, you know, there are other interactive factors that almost certainly come into play. Um, there was some really interesting recent evidence um, by Joshua Miller on um, the uh, sort of looking at other sports uh, as well. And, and uh, there's some recent work on baseball that suggests there really is a hot hand streak phenomenon with, with something in that sport, whether it be uh, on base percentage or, or, um, even in pitching, you know, there, there's a little bit more evidence for this streakiness that someone is undergoing some brief, uh, you know, blossoming of skill. And that, that sport also has maybe fewer moving parts. It's harder to defend one batter uniquely in that given the structure of that sport. So the point is, uh, there's probably less streakiness in talent and outcomes than we generally think. Um, but there is, uh, to be fair, there is some evidence for it. It's not like that never happens. In the investment world, we tend to see this in a number of different contexts. You'll see it with respect to analysts or investors uh, who have a number of calls that go the right way for them. Uh, or you can even see it with companies and management. And the dynamics for each of those situations can be very different. Kind of like you're talking about uh, with respect to there being some efficacy associated with a hot hand. In some instances, the mar- markets change over time, and there are certain trends that can develop and persist for a while. And some analysts, uh, just because of the perspective that they have, may actually be attuned to that trend. Now, you will hear about the ones that are continuously making good calls, but the ones that are not attuned to the, you know, the prevailing trend that are not being successful, you won't hear about them. But maybe they would be under other circumstances where whatever it is that they tend to see within the market, uh, if, if that were actually being appreciated by the market. So that's another interesting factor here is the uh, it's sort of like a spotlight. If there are successes occurring, that can become overweighted. Right. Just as you point out, if, if someone is not noticing the trend, they, they tend to fall off the radar. And all of this ends up just distorting our sampling of information from the world. And I think we we tend to f- over focus on successes. We want to find attribution for the success. We want there to be a skill based cause effect relationship to why something's being successful. And that's where the bias comes in. We tend to invent stories and over fixate on that piece of it. And again, there's there often is some kernel of truth there. The risk is it becomes a snowball effect where we begin to add on all kinds of other nuances that really aren't terribly critical. But all the while, we're missing 
a lot of the data. So things that are not predictive of continued success tend to go unnoticed. Um, whenever someone is unsuccessful, we stop paying attention to them, right? And, th- and that's sort of detrimental because that that's other information that's likely to counterbalance whatever successes we're watching at the moment. Well, in markets, things tend to go to extremes. So success breeds upon success until you think about two different lines. You have one line that's the intrinsic value of a business, and then you have another line uh, that is the current stock price. Uh, and the intrinsic value of a business tends to trend you know, in a relatively consistent manner and doesn't tend to move around much. But price is based often upon current narrative and what type of multiple people are willing to pay based off of what the story is behind the fundamentals associated with the business. And there are many market participants that when they start to see something work, then they pile on. So if you have an analyst that's out there who is recommending things that happen to be on trend right now, uh, we may actually be seeing a shift, who knows. But for the last several years, really since 2014, uh, we have seen large cap technology uh, companies really outperform and dominate the market. Uh, If you look at median stock performance, it is much less in the S&P 500 than the average because the average is skewed by large players like Apple, Microsoft, uh, Amazon uh, that are disproportionately affecting the indices just because of their size. Apple at one point in time earlier last month was its market cap was larger than the entire market cap of the Russell 2000, which is all of the small cap stocks that are in the stock universe. So really, you know, just, I believe, you know, around $2 trillion uh, worth of market cap, which is just absolutely amazing. That's, you know, close to 10% of the entire GDP of the country. It is incredible, right? And those numbers tend not to be forthcoming. It's, it's aware of Apple, but just that notion is is probably not common knowledge and people would be very bad at estimating such a thing you know if we yes. ask people on the street just to to suggest how those might be sized relative to yeah the notion of what uh you know uh what a, a, a trillion dollars is uh is just really you know it's it's a thousand billion and then uh you know You know, and a billion, of course, is a thousand million. We're into numbers that are just so hard to visualize. There's no concrete examples, right? And that's true of um, large economies globally. It's it's like they've really outstripped our mental toolkit for understanding them. You know, because because we're so based on sort of small local cause effect narratives. That's what we fixate on. So at the scale of things it can be really hard to actually grapple with the ground truth. So when, when we're talking about this with, in, in the context of hot hand and streaks, at least with respect to uh, analysts, if you can imagine an analyst that is covering a particular sector, we'll, we could say large cap uh, tech that continues to do well. You know, there's more efficacy put into the narratives that that analyst purports uh, and you can see more deference given to that analyst. But markets always tend to go to extremes. You know, if you think about it, like the further a stock goes beyond its intrinsic value, 
it's kind of like a long ruler that you're balancing on your hand. You know, the larger, the, the longer the ruler is, uh, the more wobbly it becomes. And that's kind of, you know, the analogy is, is that as time goes by and we let things go to extremes, because there's the only limitation in markets, there is no gravity. It's really how much uh, buying power is within the public and how much uh, the public is willing to extrapolate a narrative. And sometimes it just gets into incredibly unreasonable levels. We've seen that recently in the market where you have these new IPOs that are coming out. The one that came out earlier this week uh, was Snowflake, and it was trading at 100 times sales. Now, mind you, it is like the sales, those sales are growing at 100%. But if it was pure profit, that's one penny on $1 uh, for the investment that you're making, if you had no cost associated with those sales whatsoever. So you really do have to have sustained geometric growth that can ever justify that valuation. Uh, and, you know, unless you're talking about multiple hundred percent, you know, growth over a short period of time, uh, it is it is very difficult to imagine that it'll actually grow into that being an appropriate valuation in anytime soon. And the world is just such an uncertain place. You really have to believe in the future as it being very, very solid and being, you know, like that the trajectory for that business uh, is such that you can sustain tremendous rates of growth for a uh, really incredible period. Yeah. And one thing I, I always go back to with these kind of discussions is we, we seem to be set up for very short term thinking. We over fixate on recent events. Um, it, it's hard for people to to move out their time horizon appropriately. And it leads into the gambler's fallacy, which is the notion that uh, things are going to correct quicker than they really will. So if something is uh, not working, you think it's going to it's going to switch, and that that's somewhat our interpretation of randomness, which we've talked about a number of times in this podcast. That whenever we have actually random outcomes, people will find reasons; they will grasp for reasons as to why particular things are occurring. So they start to impose a subjective lens onto the um, the information. Um, this, I, I'm reminded of Kahneman and Tversky's original work from 1972. They called it the law of small numbers, which is this notion that people expect uh, whatever the short-term trend is, that's representative of the longer-term trend, that we can simply extrapolate the here and now. And this points to a deep core problem within sort of the human mind when it comes to analyzing companies and, and really estimating long-term success is we we have this bias to think that whatever's happening in the short term is very likely representative of the future. And as you point out with that Snowflake example, it's it's unsustainable, like just on the face of it, if you look at the numbers with any more greater clarity. But, but the crazy flip side of that is in the short side, uh, or excuse me, in the in the short term, uh, we have perception that's going to dominate price. So, and that perception tends to be reflexive, where you know you have uh, where where once something starts to work, it continues to work. So, chances are, uh, when Tesla goes up a hundred percent, it will likely continue to go up. You know, the current trajectory 
is one that is likely to persist. That is momentum. And part of that is simply that uh, there is tremendous herding behavior that occurs within um, markets. But ultimately, that herding behavior gets to a level of exhaustion where you're so far away from reality that you start to see correction. But, you know, there's an old saying that uh, John Maynard Keynes used to have that markets can stay insolvent uh, or excuse me, markets can remain uh, r- irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Amazing. Yeah. And also relevant to this conversation is uh, reflexivity, which we did an episode on um, some months back. And, uh, you know, the world isn't random. And that's important to note. Sometimes uh, the beginning of success or the perception of success can actually drive uh, success toward you, (laughs) like some kind of magnet. So reflexivity, which is this notion that uh, once something is being perceived as successful, it can there it can draw in resources and perhaps talent to uh, actually justify and sustain that success, and so that that interactivity of the world can fuel something uh, changing trajectory on us, which uh, makes the short term relevant, right? So it's it's not fair to just treat the world as random events and ignore what's going on right now because it actually can have potent, you know trajectory influencing moments. Yeah, it's interesting. There have been some instances, even with frauds in the market, where stocks got bid up based off of some narrative. And the stock got bid up enough where the company was able to issue equity at much higher prices and then actually buy a legitimate business. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, it's... uh, Sometimes belief is all you need. Sometimes you just got to believe. but the but the reality is is you know with reflexivity and it kind of how it how it interacts with this notion of the hot hand. If you have a company that's doing really well, uh, you know George Soros communicated this uh, in his Alchemy of Finance book uh, many years ago that when companies do well and their equities do better, they do have the ability then to capitalize on that higher equity price to perhaps. Uh, either get access to capital through uh, higher perception among their creditors where they may extend uh, credit at better terms or uh, better access to talent to the extent that those companies have options that they provide for their engineers in the case of a software company uh, or uh, executives that allow them to attract really a better mix of resources to be able to create operational results. So you can have this feedback loop that uh, aids in the uh, performance of the business and thus higher stock prices. But ultimately, stock prices will get out of whack. You will ultimately have this feedback loop extrapolated beyond uh, reality to such an extent that you'll see a reversal and then those positive feedback loops can start to become negative. Right. And you point out, a, I mean, this is really where it gets interesting. It's not just that people are biased toward short-term thinking and uh, you know finding those reasons. Because it's all based on human judgment, and we're all sort of human minds as participants here, eventually you will start to see that become reality. 
right? That 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 spinning of a narrative actually it's the sort of the basis of the fake it till you make it statement, right? It's it's essentially that if you look the part, eventually people start to see it and reality warps around you. It's kind of the Steve Jobs reality distortion field. Like if you claim it can be done, people will find ways to make it actually happen. Um, speaking of uh, hot hand and uh, you know, in, in a particular analyst or commentator being overly trusted, I think one of the ironies is that some of the most respected and widely trusted people are those who who actually have a pretty good long-term vision. And I think of Warren Buffett here, of somebody that just simply uh, could look at the growing value of a company with um, some pretty clear markers that there should be growth and just playing the long game. Such people tend to be seen as sages or oracles in his case, but they're not doing anything particularly magical. They're just able to overcome these very short-term uh, biases that many people suffer from. So uh, ironically, being uh, a long-term thinker is actually the key to, to seeming to have that, that hot hand. Yes. And it's very, it's a very difficult uh, mindset to adopt because we're just not wired that way. We're not wired to think in terms of years and years of, uh, you know, ultimate uh, outcomes and thinking about uh, how things develop. We, we tend to find the trend, right? Once we start to see somebody who's succeeding over a six-month period, uh, we extrapolate that into perpetuity. And then you see this uh, just naturally. Uh, you see this in markets all of the time. Uh, and you know, if you think about, for instance, uh, Tesla's stock that you know this year, you've had over the last 12 months, there's been no growth in sales. But the stock is up 500%. So the notion is, is that business is worth five times more than it was one year ago. Incredible. Uh, with yeah. no sales growth. Now, you have had a change where it has actually moved towards profitability. They're actually generating a profit where there was no profit before. Uh, but giving that the level of credit where it has, you know, Basically, that company has a greater market cap than all of the automakers combined. Uh, that, uh, you know, if you take Toyota, Honda, I'm talking internationally, uh, Ford, GM, and uh, I think Tesla uh, maybe makes uh, 100 or 200,000 cars a year, uh, whereas you know, these businesses, they make you know, millions. Right. And this is another point that we probably should bring up is in the days of Benjamin Graham and certainly Warren Buffett, the world was probably more coupled to rationality. Markets seem irrational to many, many of us a lot of the time, but they might, you're pointing out glaring irrationalities that probably didn't exist then, or if they did, they would have been discounted um, or corrected more more readily. So we may be it's just a sign of the times that uh, illusion is maybe more powerful than it used to be because uh, of the scale at which business op business operates. So I think there's a couple of things at play here, and like everything, uh, you know, it's not quite as simple as you know people are just less rational today than they were. If you think about the shape of the economy and the businesses that are uh, in effect back 
during the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, we had a much more industrialized economy. Uh, you had much more value in plant and equipment and, and depreciable assets. Whereas now, so much of the economy is service-based and based off of intellectual property, which by its nature is a human construct. Uh, you know, these it's more symbolic. And when you get into this world of symbol, symbolic value, the limitations uh, are not as bounded as the limitations associated with a brick and mortar manufacturing facility where you can see the assets where they're, you know, they have, there's more of a bounded uh, ability to assess how far it can go. If I make a piece of software, like a video game, right? I have the incremental cost for the second unit. The first unit, it costs as much as the thousandth or the millionth. Right. No, we deal with abstract concepts and ethereal uh, invisible forces all the time in society now. And this is, again, I'm reminded of an excellent book called The Knowledge Illusion by um, Steve Sloman uh, and Philip Fernbach. And they, they point out the same trend in modern life. So many things are not concrete. They're not physical. And so we have to take people's word for it. We have to consume news and opinion because you can't physically visit the store and appreciate the scale at which we're operating. So um, this is a fascinating topic and we could go on. Um, I, I don't want us to lose our heat in this streak. So let's maybe <laughs> wrap up here with some lessons for the listener. Uh, one of the things I I take from this is um, you have to beware of the hero narrative. If some something seems too good to be true and it's it's based on very recent events, beware of it. It's not that it can't turn out to be some stunning opportunity or trend. That all big trends do have to launch from somewhere. It's just that so many times uh, things do not play out. Um, in the long term, the way they look right now. And there's all manner of context factors that that relate to that. Um, so playing the long game, so to speak, is often the remedy here to focus on fundamentals, focused on, on obvious catalyst events that are going to bear fruit, maybe not tomorrow, but probably in the next six months to a year. And those can be better strategies um, however, that said, don't forget there are remarkable short-term opportunities because the world is not random. You know, sometimes the trend can be spotted if you have enough information. When it comes to securities and thinking about things like the hot hand, uh, I think the important thing to be aware of is what game you're playing, right? If you're playing a short-term narrative, you're trading, you're speculating, you're basically making a decision based off of what the narrative is and whether you think that narrative will persist, know that you're playing that game and know that you cannot linger indefinitely. If you're playing for a longer game, if you're playing for something where you see an opportunity based upon valuation and future prospects that stretch long beyond one year time frame, you know, know that you're playing that game and that you will be subject to volatility. Uh, so it's, a lot, of, a lot of the sense that I get when I'm thinking about short-termism versus a long-term value uh, is that it, I can play either game, but I just need to know which game I'm Well put. All right, George, let's go play some darts. We'll talk to you again soon. 
Let's do it. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a job. Please subscribe and like Mental Models Podcast. The five-starred book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making, is available through Amazon. This book will help you overcome the biases that are keeping you from investing success. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.